we will look back in 50 years time and be like, how could we not cost the externalities of every single thing that we were producing? And how could we not centralize the notion of natural capital much more quickly in our economy? You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast. I am so excited to have Sarah Langford, author of Rooted, Stories of Life, Land, and Farming Revolution. Sarah is the author of several other books about her times as a barrister and their eye-opening about that profession. But what makes this book particularly unique is that it's a transition from that lifestyle to a lifestyle of farming. Now, as I said earlier, the reason I'm very excited is because a little bit of backdrop for the audience. I met Sarah at a party unrelated to anything having to do with uh, Sward or Ruben, who's going to be joining us a little bit later. And we got started talking about her transition into farming and where she came from. And it was really interesting, her passion behind it and what she was looking forward to and and she had mentioned the fact that she is writing this book and I hadn't expected it. Now, I happen to have also met her husband and uh, part of the team of SWORD alongside with Ruben at roughly the same time. And what really came together after reading the book and talking to her was the plight of the UK farmer or the global farmer and the impact that it has on climate. So I went down this dark rabbit hole and this book did an amazing job of opening up those eyes for me. Also, Jeremy Clarkson's show, which I won't even admit to in, in public. Sarah, you probably know this because somebody said that Jeremy Clarkson did more for showcasing the plight of the UK farmer than Farmer Weekly in 20 years. It was James V. Banks. He said it about Country File. Yeah, he's right. It's a really good show. It's an eye-opening account, and I would say yours takes it to a whole new level. And so I wanted to start off this interview by reading a couple of things that really struck me in the book, and then sort of set the stage for hearing your thoughts around this. And so I think what the book does an amazing job is taking the reader through the history of farming, especially post-war farming. And then it goes through sort of what looks like a boom period, and then a bust period. And then at the same time, this growth in government intervention and external interventions, which some of them are misguided, it seems, from some of the, the things you share. And then the volatility in pricing for farmers, and then ultimately that breaking down of that social contract between farmers and the people they feed. And so it starts off with this interesting quote about in 1984, how a farmer, Charlie, he becomes a farmer for the first time then. And he says, when Michaelmas comes and leaves in the copse at the bottom of England's field turns shades of gold, Britain's harvest produces the biggest yield of wheat in his farming history. Farmers all over the country fill their barns with record-breaking crops. And what's interesting, as we fast forward there, only a few pages later, we're talking about how that has entirely collapsed and how the entire world of farming starts dropping to the point where a pint of beer is yielding more than the price that it takes to feed the cows that make the milk. That just blew my mind. The, the pain and the suffering associated with starting a farm, and building it and plowing all the energy and at the other end, there is nothing really financial to the benefit, to the point where later in the book, there's this really touching moment where Ollie, a newly minted farmer, is chatting with his father, who was a farmer, who quit being a farmer. And there's this relationship between the two of them where the dad doesn't quite say this, but you say that the father says it through other means, you know, sort of a look or maybe through a presence. And he says, Ollie doesn't need his father to say the words out loud. He knows what his dad wants to say to him. And he's saying, don't do this do anything but this. It is not like it was. You will be a pinball in a political arcade played around by those who will never live this life and with no chance of ever controlling the game. It is a trap. It will consume you with its unpredictability and instability. It will harden you. It will ask everything of you. 
it will break you. And it's one of these things where when you read that, you know, especially with the foundation of what farming was post-war, which was this glorified profession, which was around helping feed the nation and how that became something where older generations were almost preventing newer generations from taking up the banner. There's a lot more fun stories. There's a really fun story about uh, father and son once they've moved into regenerative farming and some of the cows are finally grazing in the grass because I didn't know this, but a lot of cows don't graze in grass because they can easily get hurt. And the cow gets trapped in a hedge and then the father and son get into a bunch of cow jokes. You provide this snippet into the life of a farmer. And in a different part of the book, you talk about how farmers sometimes end up talking to just farmers because it's similar to the life of a soldier. Like you can only relate to the challenges that you have. And so you go through all this and you help the reader understand this highs and lows, emotional commitments and emotional valleys of being a farmer. But then you guide us into this conclusion about what needs to change. And it's not just about the supply of food and the excess supply of food. It's also about farming methods and how to do regenerative farming. And towards the end, and I'll read this when, when Ruben joins us, I'll talk a little bit more about the regenerative farming and its impact on carbon. But I just want to take this opportunity to, first of all, pause, because it is actually quite touching to reread some of these passages, because they're filled with pain and, and filled with moments of, of adversity that touch people's lives and continue to do so to this day. And, and I want to understand a little bit about your background and going from a barrister to a farmer, what drove you to do that? And what drove you to write this book? I mean, Carlos, can I just take you to all my book events and then just <laughs> have you as a warm up? You can just do that. <laughs> I mean, it's really genuinely humbling to hear you say all that because I didn't know if I could pull off what I wanted to pull off, which is to combine quite a lot of data and facts and science with human stories. And it's a great relief that <laughs> you think I have done that. But I think it would help explain kind of how I fit into all of this. So I come from a farming background. My grandparents were farmers. Charlie, who you mentioned is my uncle, he is the first farmer in the story. And my dad was a land agent, so he spent his career advising farmers on what to do with their land to make it profitable. But I wanted nothing to do with farming at all when I was thinking about careers. I decided I wanted to become a barrister, but we didn't know any barristers. So I set out on a kind of path to try and go into this job, which seemed to fulfill all the requirements I wanted, showing off, dressing up, but also language and words and using stories because ultimately that's what law particularly the barrister side of it which is that wearing a wig standing up in court and putting your client's case that's really what it does is take the black and white of the law and put in all the nuance and the gray of human life so I did that for 10 years. I lived in London. I traveled around the country going to various courts and I did criminal and a bit of family law. And then I had babies, which is a mistake if you're going to be a barrister because you they're quite hard to fit around the chaos of a court schedule. Often you get your case the day before. You don't know when you're going to leave the next morning, let alone when you're going to come home. So I took some time off to have children. And it was when I was pregnant with my second son that I met my literary agent. And then when he was 10 days old, I signed the book deal for my first book. And that's a similar kind of style and frame to Rooted. It's called In Your Defence. And it's narrative nonfiction. So everything in it is true, anonymized, but true. But it reads like a story. So each 
chapter is a case and I wanted to walk people through the lives of the people I represented and to stop them being seen as the cartoons and stereotypes that I would read about in newspapers or hear people describe to me when they would ask how can you defend a fill in the blank. While I was writing that book my husband lost his job in the 2017 election and we found ourselves with two extremely small children. We bought this dilapidated house in London but it had genuinely no ceilings and a few stairs. We couldn't live in it so we thought well we'll just go to Suffolk which is where he grew up. His parents have got a small farm that they've kind of built up over decades but it was mainly run from afar as landowners really rather than farmers. And we thought we'll just stay there for six months and kind of have a break from reality. We stayed for two years in the end. We're there every weekend and every holidays and half term and we're still running it. And it was a hugely unexpected but pivotal journey that I went on. We found ourselves landing in the countryside as farmers or trying to be farmers at one of the most gigantic changes in farming history in two generations, if not more. Because of Brexit, the link to the subsidies, the European subsidies, which had kept farming and food production really afloat since the Second World War, were going That had happened. The Agricultural Act came in and decoupled the payments so that they are, it's happening already, they're being phased out. So for the first time in a really long time, farmers weren't getting paid for producing food. They were going to get what the government has called public money for public good. And the public good does not include food. The public good is just environmental. So we had to decide how we were going to make this farm profitable amongst this huge sea change, which meant we really had to decide what being a farmer was. And because of that journey, I had to work out how my grandfather, who had never owned his own land, had been a tenant farmer, was a hero. Everyone knew him locally. He won prizes. He was very sure that his place in the world was to feed the nation. And it was only because of him and the work he did that the Allies won the war and that we didn't starve during the Second World War and afterwards because rationing in Britain went on for a long time after the war finished. 40 years later, my uncle finds himself the villain. And that's absolutely how he sees himself. He reads newspaper articles, gets into arguments in the pub. And he, in 40 years, has become the one who's responsible for 10% of all climate change emissions, decimation of wildlife, uh, a huge drop in farmland birds, ensuring that no river or stream in England is now safe enough officially to swim in because it's so polluted. And he also finds himself not tasked with the job of producing food, which is what he thought he was doing when he became a farmer at 23, but only getting public money and public respect for environmental options. And I tried to work out how this happened. And I began to see that you cannot look or blame farmers for the actions that they have taken without understanding the context in which they took those actions which is exactly like all the clients that I represented. It's the same thing. If you're representing a drug dealer, you have to understand why they were doing, what circumstances they found themselves in. And I thought it's such an important story. And it's important not just because we all need to eat, but because farmers in Britain represent or rather look after 70% of our land. And we might not feel the strings that connect us to that land, but that is land that cleans the air that we breathe. It cleans the water that runs through our streams and rivers. It supports the biodiversity chain of which we are part. So 
the insects, the birds, the mammals, and at the end of the chain, us. It also provides us with something a bit more ephemeral, which is harder to put a monetary value on, but which science has tried very hard to prove a link between our mental health and the outdoors and what our brains do when we smell soil or gossamin, which is the smell of rain on earth just after it's rained. Many other cultures and countries are way ahead of us in terms of that, whether it's kind of Japanese forest bathing or other kind of prescriptions to go outside, is happening in other countries but the farmer's ability to look after the land that can mentally heal us is in their gift and I wanted to know how all of these kind of rather unquantifiable attributes that no one was really understanding the depth of them and then I began to learn more about regenerative farming because I had to learn what we were going to do with this land And there was this other enormous part of farming, which I began to understand, which was soil and carbon. And I could see immediately how the farmer's ability to increase the carbon in their soils, sequestering it from the atmosphere and locking it up in the soil, meant that farming and agriculture could be pretty much the only industry that could not just reduce its carbon emissions, but absorb it. And absorb it as a byproduct. They're not inventing new tech. They're not spending billions on inventing a machine to suck carbon out of the air. They are producing food and fibre and being part of our biodiverse countryside as a byproduct of the techniques that some people were starting to relearn or adapt they were also locking carbon into the soil drawing it out of the atmosphere and I think the thing which blew my mind the most apart from understanding soil science which is extraordinary and ever-changing the fact that you've got the ability potentially to lock it up for a really long time If you plant a tree or a hedgerow, that will secure carbon in the roots of the tree and in the tree itself. But eventually the tree will die or be cut down. And that's when the carbon is released. But soil, if you lock it up, especially deep in the profile, if you manage it well, that carbon can stay in the soil indefinitely. I could see that in this extraordinary time when farmers are losing the money that they've relied on, half of all farms in England are not profitable without public subsidy because food prices are some of the lowest in the world, apart from the US and Singapore. They're losing this public money. They're being encouraged to change their farming practices by public money for public good. And there's a new generation, which you've already talked about, Ollie's one of them, farmers that are coming in with a completely different way of looking at the world than their parents may have looked and they have Instagram and YouTube and a worldwide network to look at a farmer in America and how he's mob grazing his cattle or how he's growing cover crops their network is vast they don't need to be the only person doing something different because they can see that someone else doing something different one of the things that is probably worth exploring for the listeners is what things look like at scale I think one of the things that this is not me being a, a skeptic here this is more just taking any one thing and, and blowing it out to its extreme, right? Because I think what your book highlights is what happens when you're just incentivizing people to produce so much that it overtaxes the the soil, right? So now let's go the other way. You share how certain kinds of crops have to be rotated and you talk about different breeds of cows and how they've been overly selected because of the milk they produce. And you talk about regenerative farming. And if you could wave a wand and every single farm in the world overnight went to regenerative farming, what I'm wondering is what does the supply of food, logistics, seasonal food availability, what would that look like? And I'm just trying to get a sense from 
Because yeah. your book is actually two separate things, right? One of them is the carbon. And we'll come back to that in a second, right? Digging up peat and all these other things. So we'll park that for a second when, when mm -hmm. Ruben comes on board. But if we've just focused on food supply and everything from meat to, to plants that we eat, what does the global transformation to regenerative farming look like either in terms of food production volume or mm -hmm. supply or availability or reductions? You're completely right. And actually, I think what one of the things that I've learned is that firstly, of course, there's no silver bullet to anything ever. And secondly, just relying on one method, one technique for anything is cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's never going to work. You have to have diversity. You have to have a range of techniques. The food supply issue is impossible to talk about without talking about food waste because they are so intrinsically interlinked. And our ability to have whatever we want whenever we want it has become something that many of us, particularly in the city, absolutely take for granted. And that is impossible to remedy without tackling food waste because we produce globally enough food to feed three billion more people than actually exist. And we are throwing away billions and billions of tons of edible food a year where there is still rising food poverty. Even in England, there is rising food poverty. So when people get caught, snagged rather, on this idea of we won't have enough food to feed everyone if we move to this way of farming, there's enough evidence to say cheap food and loads of food still doesn't feed everyone now. It doesn't get to the people who need it now. That is a policy and political change that needs to happen before we're able to transition, reduce supply. But they have to happen in tandem. There was a very big report by Henry Dimbleby that came out that talked a lot about food waste. And it's impossible to talk about these two arguments without linking them together. It's a tricky one because I think you very elegantly park it by saying you can't talk about one without the other. But, you know, it's funny because when you look at impact that a reduction in the food supply would have in, let's say, the UK would have no impact whatsoever in some of the parts of the world where that excess supply is needed, right? Like the two things are somewhat decoupled, right? And, and therein lies the problem is that that decoupling, if you go straight to regenerative farming in, in the developed world or in, in certain parts of the world, even that reduction of waste wouldn't necessarily transform itself into efficiency gains in other parts of the world. And one of the things I'm curious about is what impact up the stack of commerce is driving that and what the role they play. And one potential culprit in your book are the supermarkets. And I don't know enough about the industry of food distribution to know how much of it is globally interlinked. You know, a supermarket, when we think supermarket, we think about the local supermarket. I know that there are more interlinked in terms of where things are sourced and what relationships, let's say, a large supermarket might have with an international provider. And so I'm trying to understand this value chain to answer this point about what we're discussing about the link between food waste and, and not. And it might start abroad, but with a local supermarket. And in your book, you're talking about Farmer Tom and how he's listening to his parents in the kitchen trying to work out what to do when the numbers don't add up because the sale price of things isn't adding up. And, and I start with his mother was washing up. His father's going through the paperwork in his chair by the window. They talk, swirling Tom's future up with theirs. His dad growls about the supermarkets and how they're screwing him. The new contract they want him to sign is even worse than the last. They want the farm to detail all their production costs. Costs of the barns, the feed, the vet bills, the farmhand who helps with the milking. But he knows what will happen if he does. The supermarket will come back and tell them where they can cut those costs even further so they can pay him even less. It's important to say he's a dairy farmer. 
And milk has had a very troubled relationship with supermarkets because for a long time, supermarkets have used milk as what they call a loss leader. They price it incredibly cheaply to get people in because 90 or so percent of people still drink dairy milk. So they come in and then they hope they buy something else in the store. And there have been periods of production. We're not in one at the moment, but where the cost of production is way over the price paid for milk. And it's a cartel. <laughs> the dairy farmers have got very little power in a situation where they're in a bound into a contract and they have to take the price that they're given. They're reliant on the producers to collect it every day. If they break their contract, it won't come. And there have been various unsuccessful moves to break that. There was a milk marketing board that came in in, I think, the 90s. Dairy Farmers of Britain was a cooperative that tried to break it. That went under. All the dairy farmers that signed into it collapsed greatly in debt. So it's an extremely complicated situation. It's even more complicated when you understand there's a brilliant Netflix film about this called Milk. And our excess milk is freeze-dried and sent to often developing countries as easily available milk at really cheap prices, which then undercuts their own local supply, their own local dairy producers. It's a huge and global enterprise. I don't want to put you in a hot spot here, but I mean, uh, to some extent... Well, I can tell you I'm not going to come up with the answers in a, in a podcast. There are entire books written about it. So. Yes, yes. It's, it, it's covered here. Buy it, guys. <laughs> On Amazon, hardcover right now. Look, even the Blur cooperated. 7th of July. You've got an early copy, Carlos. It's the 7th of July, is that? Yeah, it's coming out. There's the audiobook. Do you narrate it? Who narrates it? I do. It? I'm going to do it next month, yeah. Even Fry narrates it? <laughs> the reason why I'm highlighting this is because if we go back to this whole issue of waste, right? What you're saying is there's a really difficult balance between the reduction that regenerative farming would bring with this excess waste that we have. So in theory, if you can get the waste reduced and regenerative farming implemented, you have this nice balance. But it seems that part of the reason why there's this decoupling of these two things, this lack of balance between supply and demand, it's because the commercial incentives of some organizations like the supermarkets are into locking up sourcing or delivering cheaper products to bring in other products to customers. And, and it's that game that sometimes we can't fix. And it sounds like from your book, it's the farmers who are paying for it with the way that government is intervening on their behalf rather than intervening at the supermarket level. It's very difficult to intervene at supermarket level because no government, particularly a conservative government, will want to crush any private enterprise with too much regulation. We've got more regulation, I think, than we've had in any government period in history. And so what you're talking about is essentially creating a minimum price for something. And that's been on the table for a while. Like if a government said, right, you have to pay a minimum of production costs. Most governments will be extremely nervous about regulating what is essentially a private market. And I should say that supermarkets have made efforts. You do have things like wonky veg now. They are getting more serious about it. I know Tesco's have reduced their food waste significantly. There's a report that came out about it last year and they have made efforts to it, but there's still a lot of food waste on the farm itself. And that is linked to the supermarkets because the supermarkets say our machines can only cope with potatoes that are this big. And so any other potatoes, we can't buy them. Or our carrots have to fit in this bag, so they have to be this long and this wide, because that's how many carrots fit in this bag. And there was an NSPCC and World Health Organization, I think it was, report that came out last year that said food waste is even bigger than we thought it was, because for the first time ever, it looked at waste on farm. And I write about going to a carrot field and finding an entire field of carrots unharvested. And it could be that the supermarket cancel the contract at the last minute. It could be that they've just overproduced because they'll forward sell it and no one will buy it. 
It could be that they haven't got the labour to collect it. So it all the way down the food chain. We, the customer, have had all the benefits, which is whatever we want, whenever we want it, at the cheapest price in history. We're spending 8% of our annual salary on food. My grandparents are spending a third of their annual salary on food. But we have taken none of the responsibility for our choices and how they link down the food chain. So we'll buy mango in February or we'll buy avocados from Costa Rica or whilst at the same time, you know, declaring all meat to be evil. So we bear as much responsibility, if not more, than the supermarkets, because the supermarkets only sell what we buy. If we don't buy it, and I tell you that although it may feel like one person's decision has no impact, a really good example of the fact that it does are eggs. So it used to be the case that caged eggs were the norm. Over 90% of all eggs bought in Britain were from cages. As soon as regulation came in that made producers put caged eggs or free range eggs on their boxes, the majority of egg consumers switched to free range. So now, and only a couple of decades later, free range eggs are the entry point for eggs. So the ability for consumers to understand what they're buying has got the potential to completely change the market and the food chain. And labelling is a massive topic at the moment because I don't know if you know what Red Tractor is, but the majority of people don't, or RSPCA assured or what that means, or even corn-fed, grass-fed, which doesn't necessarily mean that they've been on grass their whole life. So if we are able, and one of the ways this might happen is a food miles, if we're able to have a labelling system that is very clear in a way that it isn't at the moment, that may change the food system dramatically without the supermarkets having to do anything apart from sell us what we're asking for. If you go in and you look not at kind of whether it's free range or grass fed or whatever, but where it's come from, how many miles it's travelled to get there, by accident, you will probably end up eating seasonally. And if you eat seasonally, you'll probably end up eating something that's grown not too far away from you. And that will have a huge impact, potentially very quickly. Okay, so I think the the conclusion there is that the consumer has more power than we might think. And that power trickles down into these decisions and is supportive. And one of the anecdotes you give in the book is around how much some of the farmers that went on social channels to sell beef outside of the traditional channels sold out just because people are are desperate for this sort of relationship with their food. And maybe that's the future of farms is is personal relationships across the board, which brings us to the second part of of the book, which is is around carbon. And Ruben, come on online. Sorry, we kept you waiting for a little bit, but you know, it's a great transition. I'm going to read this part of Sarah's book, which is a perfect transition to the second half of what the relationship with a farmer is, not just in terms of food supply, but also an environmental supply. I don't even know that's a a term, but environmental supply. So page 290, why have you plowed the field? A few decades ago, this question would have been absurd. A plowed field is as symbolically tied to farming as a tractor or a cow. It is an image of our relationship with the earth, a black and white woodcut on the cover of an old book. And this is true. Like every single image I have of farming is like those little, you know. When I was a child, I would bounce on the icy top of a plowed trench in winter, waiting to see how long it would take for the soil to give way and my boot to collapse into the earth. In my memory, the soil smelled richer than perfume. I remember wrong. Cold earth smells of almost nothing. We all like to romanticize the land, it seems even to ourselves. Now I see something different. I don't see a rich brown earth turned up and ready for new seeds to be planted, to grow within it. I instead, I imagine the carbon that has been locked into the soil being released into the atmosphere, gusting up like those thermal images used to frighten people about the heat escaping from uninsulated homes. 
I imagine the sliced up worms, broken soil structure, and disrupted fungal pathways. I imagine rain pooling within the peak soil trenches, washing to the edge of the field and into the ditches around them, taking topsoil and nutrients with it. Now when I see a plowed field, it just looks exposed, almost shocking, like a great brown wound. And so that's what SWORD is about. And that's what Ruben, when we first met, was trying to explain to me and bring to the fore about what is the other layer of potential revenue for a farmer that can heal this wound, this division, this commercial division between food production and the environment. So Ruben, what is SWORD and why does it exist? Yeah, well, you spoke about this kind of financial and ecological division, and Sarah in her book gives a really visceral account of the environmental and human cost of that division. Let me give a, a financial or economic lens on, I think, what SWORD's about. And our mission, by the way, we describe it as rewiring agriculture around natural capital. There's a quote that I like by Parthidas Gupta, who's a famous and eminent economist. And he says, to paraphrase, over the past 70 years, global GDP has increased in real terms by a factor of nearly 15. And our global demand for biosphere goods and services, that it's our ecological footprint effectively, now far exceeds the biosphere's ability to supply those goods and services. And so if you're a finance person like me, to summarize, what does that mean? It means that the income statement, our GDP is deceptively strong and the balance sheet has been effectively destroyed. Right. And what you're witnessing in Sarah's book is this kind of uh, tactile on the ground, visible destruction of our balance sheet. Right. And the only way that we're going to kind of amend that or change that is by harmonizing the ecological and the financial. And that's really what SWORD is, is here to do. It's about building that harmony into effectively a user experience for farmers and enabling them to take control over their natural capital assets alongside their stewardship and food production. So walk us through a little bit more detail. What do you mean take more control? What does SWORD do for the farmers and other yeah. actors in the ag ecosystem? So interesting thing about a farmer is, well, there's lots of things, but at this moment in time is that the opportunity to sequester carbon, for example, or the opportunity to build biodiversity or even use less nitrogen, so reduce inputs and, and clean our waters, these opportunities emerge at that part of the value chain that they are the stewards of. So effectively, it's their behaviors, their management activities, their actions that can make these changes. And a way of thinking about those potential changes, so sequestering carbon is the one on everybody's lips at the moment, is as assets, as things that they can do and that they can market. And everybody wants them to do, it turns out. So if you think about a sequestered unit of carbon in agricultural soil, that is something that they can achieve through an alteration in their practice. But they need incentives to do that. You know, everybody needs incentives to do that. Sarah said in her part of the podcast that a lot of farmers and farming is not profitable, right? And everything, whether it's a change in a behavior or the introduction of a new piece of equipment or the changing of a use of fertilizer has a cost associated with it. And so what we need to do is give farmers a saleable opportunity, that is to build an incentive. And that's what we're trying to do at SWORD to enable that behavior to change and to enable this ecological and financial harmonizing to happen. So help me quantify that. So if, if we baseline, let's say how much money a farmer would have made per land, you know, Sarah talks about in her book and, you know, Charlie's uh, record-breaking year, 1984. And if, if you just take that as a baseline yep. and you look at the reduction in revenue from that point, right? So let's say that was a hundred pounds and now we're at like 60, maybe 50. I don't know, Sarah, where would it be now? If that was a hundred, where would it be now? 30? You mean for the sale of his wheat? Yeah. For the sale of everything, what inflation adjusted, the decline of that hundred pounds now is worth how much? It's hard to do that because the cost of inputs has gone up as well. So in terms of profit share, I mean, less than half, wouldn't you think, Ruben? 
given at the moment we've got hugely high wheat prices because of the war with Russia and Ukraine, but we've also got hugely high input prices. So if you're farming inorganically, you're selling for more, but you're not getting as much. So let's say it's a drop of 60 to 40. I should say, sorry, Carlos, back in that boom year, farmers were getting a huge amount of money of public subsidy. The more you made, the more public money you got. That's when you had grain mountains, butter mountains, wine lakes. So although, yes, they got good prices for their wheat, that was coupled with a huge amount of public income. All of that is going. All of that public money for food production is going. So it sounds like there was inflation, which led to some of the wastage from that era. And even if we factor that in, it looks like, let's just say 50% then. So like there's a 60% decline, but if you reduce 10% or 20% from the inflation from that period, maybe you're looking at a 40% decline, 50 to 40% decline, right? And so the, the reason I'm asking this question is because I wanted to set the stage for Ruben to help us understand what is the untapped benefit for a farmer for having this additional layer of environmental benefit? I mean, are, are we looking yeah, at really a full recovery? So in the modeling that we've done, maybe this is useful. So in the modeling that we've done across arable farming, we've seen the basic payments, BPS, which is the European centralized scheme, which was effectively European centralized subsidy for farming. So that's not strictly speaking associated with productivity, although it's more nuanced and we can part that for a second. We think that the loss of that, which in some cases can be up between 30 to even up to 55, 60% of farmers revenue can be entirely compensated for over the next five years by natural capital payments. Now, natural capital payments is a broad church of asset sale. And some of that would be carbon. Some of that could be biodiversity net gain. Some of that could be um, associated contract with water companies to change protocol and extract nitrogen from the soil and thereby buy waterways. But we think that it is basically central for UK farmers, particularly UK arable farmers, to engage in this new market. And therefore, there absolutely has to be a tool which enables them to clearly measure, manage and market uh, this new set of assets alongside food production, you know, because well, everything that I'm talking about with SWORD is, is half of the equation. It is increasingly half by revenue terms of the equation. But of course, a farmer's main job, and this is a hot button issue recently because of food security, because unfortunately what's happening in the East, but a farmer's main job is to produce food. And so the trick is, can you build software or can you build and or other mechanisms to support farmers to make what are quite complicated decisions. And, and farmers are very good at making those intuitively, but the, the time really is now to introduce new tools and incentives. So one of the things that Sarah brings up in her book, which which I found very touching, but you know, very sad part of the book was when a farmer was being taken to court for the mistreatment of the sheep. And, and it wasn't so much that he was mistreating the sheep as she dug further into why it was because you know his partner had died. He couldn't afford the people helping him with the farm. And in fact, he just let it go. He just emotionally drained, financially drained, and didn't have the energy. And this story came on the tail end of some of the paperwork that the farmers <laughs> were doing, right? And it was a statement, a little bit of the complexity of being a farmer and how even for somebody who's relatively you know, new to farming and young coming from tech and coming from law, it was still a daunting task. And so if I was listening to this as a cynical investor, maybe listening to you guys chat and be like, that's nice, but how are you going to sell this group of people who are already time starved, who perhaps aren't really prone to these tools into something that could be in a massive benefit, but intrinsically the, the industry is just so time starved to be able to self-heal. 
Yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting question. I think farmers arguably, and Sarah might correct me on this, are arguably less time poor than they were in the past. And that's largely because of mechanization and the introduction of some fertilizers and other tools. So of course, farmers have busy days. There is evidence of 15%, for example, growth year on year of engagement with FMSs, which are kind of farming tools. I do also think there's a, an interesting demographic shift happening in farming at the moment, where a lot of younger farmers who are perhaps more digitally native are coming to the fore. And, you know, honestly, look, this is back pocket stuff. You know, what drives engagement with anything, I think, is the opportunity for benefit. And in a world where farmers' bottom lines are in trouble, I think that there is an incentive to engage with things that perhaps might not have been so obvious to engage with before. And certainly that's what we're hoping. And so far has been extremely warm. We've had really high early uptake, which has been great. Uh, I completely agree. But I also think there's going to be a change of hands in a, a lot of farms. And the brutal truth is that in this brave new world where tech is essential to farming, already is essential to farming, those who cannot keep up, who have basically been bolstered by public money, their unwillingness or inability to learn this new tech hasn't been a problem because they've still got an income stream coming in from the public. If they can't keep up, they will have to sell their farm or leave. And I know that that for multi-generational farmers is extremely tragic, but there are many landless new farmers who want to farm and they want to do it regeneratively and they want to do it with tech. And so there is going to be a huge change of hands, I think, over the next couple of years. Farmers who've been able to stick their head in the sand about modern life and get by, just about get by, they will no longer be able to do it. And the government's put together a fund which is rolled up BPS, which is up to £100,000 for farmers to bring forward their retirement so that they can leave the farm and give it or rent it or sell it to a young landless farmer that wants the chance. And that story was a really pertinent reminder of how dense the paperwork is. And I've done it. And I'm doing it with Ruben next week. So he will see how this is. I've worked in public sector. Ben's worked in public sector. It's really hardcore. But yesterday I was on a farm, a 47-year-old farmer, sixth generation farmer. So 200 years in farming. He has indoor barn chickens and he's got beef supplicate herd and he's got arable. And his phone had all the tech on it about every single enterprise that he's doing. He's doing mob grazing with multiple herbal lays. And he's huge. He's got a breed of cows, which has got IP on it because it's a particular crossbred cow. And the genetics come over from America and he uses surrogate cows here to birth them. So his keeping up with his use of tech to ensure that he is highly productive, but also is on top of all the welfare issues of which there are many was astonishing and he's doing all this on four thousand like he's got a group of three of them doing it on four and a half thousand acres it's a substantial bit of land and multiple enterprises so it misrepresents the farming community to say that they're all i do know farmers who don't have smartphones and i was told a story about a farmer who went to bed in his wellies the other day for so long that they had to cut him off because he got foot rot so there is a demographic and a generation who have been able to remove themselves from modern life because subsidies have allowed that to happen that's changing now if you go to an event like groundswell which is a regenerative farming festival you will see the amount of tech on display the average age i reckon is about 30 40 50 all the next generation of people coming up and they are really not only tech savvy but they have used tech to connect to one another way before they've met each other and to share ideas and resources i gotta go to groundswell let me know when you're going ruben let's go yeah let's do it <laughs>
Sounds like fun. But on this point, Sarah, I want to expand the conversation beyond the UK. I think it's interesting when we're talking about the dynamics of government and policies and pricing and environmental initiatives and subsidies and carbon pricing, which do ring bells of specific countries in the world that have those mechanisms in place. And Ruben, what is the view of SWORD for enabling emerging farmers globally benefit from this? Or does it require that kind of governmental maturity in policies and environmental subsidies? cities for it to actually be a viable opportunity? Well, it's a really, really interesting question. So prima facie, there's probably an even larger opportunity in developing markets at first glance. Why is that? Well, if carbon is carbon is carbon, which it kind of is and it kind of isn't, but anyway, the carbon price should be pretty stable across contexts. And therefore, when we're talking about it at 30, 40% revenue over here over the next four or five years or whatever that is, that should be even higher in developing contexts, right? Because they're running much less in general. As you say, I think that is complicated by access, by the availability of certain resources. And again, there is another transnational issue here, which is about government's role in subsidizing agriculture and what that means for natural capital markets. Natural capital markets are rightly preoccupied with this notion of additionality. That means that green finance has to be the thing which is motivating the change, where it's the capture of carbon or the behavior change. And sometimes it can be probably easier to disentangle that additionality in a context which has a more sophisticated policy environment. So we can work with the UK government and we can say, okay, what is the UK government doing? Where's its money flowing and what, what incentives are it building? And what's the market doing? And what does the market own in terms of carbon additionality? And I think that's probably easier in a developed context and perhaps less so in a developing context. And indeed, I think markets, rightly or wrongly, tend to be a bit more skeptical of developing context credits often. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, when Ruben starts off with carbon is carbon, with the caveats, he's completely right in that the model is the model and it can spread to wherever people are willing to put into practices. I don't know if, I mean, the developing world and tech finance is not my area, but if you look at the practices of regenerative farming and generally incorporating animals into rotations, combining crops together so you don't have monocultures, keeping roots in the ground all the time so you don't have bare earth, and generally kind of returning to a mixed farming system where the entire system worked together, complementing each other. Many of those practices are still continued in the developing world. Small farms feed a huge amount of people in the developing world. And lots of the practices which we're trying to incorporate are indigenous practices. The use of seaweed, growing the three sisters was a form of growing a cereal with a legume bean around it and another nitrogen fixing plant. That's a technique that multiple indigenous cultures used all over the world. So in theory, I realise that's the easy bit. I don't see the practices that are often practised by small farmers are exactly the kind of practices which we are trying to persuade modern farmers in the Western world to develop. So I don't know why it couldn't branch out. Mm. Well, the final question for you both, if we fast forward the future 50 years from now and we look back in 2022 and we think, oh my gosh, how did we let that happen? Just like we look back at 1900s and we look at child labor and we think, how did we let that happen? 50 years in the future, what will we look back on today and think, how were my grandparents letting this happen? Sarah. 
I think that we will wonder how a monolith of businesses managed to dump few businesses managed to dominate so much of an industry, which is what has happened with predominantly the fertilizers and chemical companies, of which there aren't that many. And it's the same with seeds and how important it is to create a infrastructure that doesn't allow for monocultures, whether that's in businesses or in what products are producing. That I think is how the the dominating structure at the top that ends up trickling down, impacting so many. I can see Ruben's dreading his turn. question, <laughs> um, Carlos. Yeah, yeah. So we said no hospital passes at the beginning of this podcast. What do I think? I think that natural capital is a bit like economic dark matter in that it is entirely relied upon and somehow it's been entirely invisible up until this point. And I think we will look back in 50 years time and be like, why, how could we not cost the externalities of every single thing that we were doing and producing? And how could we not centralize the notion of natural capital much more quickly in our economy? And what a big mistake, hopefully we almost made, but avoided. I want to change my answer to Ruben's answer, please. Nice. Hey, they're all good. The majority of costs have been invisible to us. We haven't been aware of them in our consciousness and been thinking about them and we haven't been reading about them. They haven't been on a label. We have been living kind of with impunity for a long time. Yeah. And I think you're right. That's a much better answer. Yes. I'll give you my answer to the question just for humor's sake. Because I thought about how, you know, one of the things that I do is obviously as an investor is think about how our, our models are flawed and both in terms of investing models or deployment models, everything is construct and those constructs have their flaws and they evolve with time, right? And it's funny, like this is an extension of Ruben's answer, but it maybe triangulates the fact that many of us are feeling the same thing. You know, it, it's funny how this public stock markets don't necessarily factor in, for example, uh, natural supply of things. So like if you're a fishing company and fishing stocks are declining, you're perversely incentivized to sell more revenue of canned whatever animal because it will increase share price because it's revenue driven rather than strategically taking a pause in that factoring into the shareholder price. And there is no linkage there. It's like, it's as if supply is infinite when some things are not, right? That is a capitalism flaw that isn't built into the public traded market in a way that is 100% unified with share price. Right now, it's this sort of parallel economy that's a part of a cost P&L element, which is the carbon tax, right? And then that trickles down into like, you know, profitability or not, depending on that carbon tax. But that sort of visibility needs to be at the sort of share price level where it's like almost a trading mechanism. It's almost like a, a quasi index of its own. But anyway, that's kind of like my overly complex answer. Yeah. Really cool. Um, so as I said at the beginning of this podcast, it's an absolute pleasure to interview you guys. It's always fun when you get to invest in companies that are doing fun changes and making big impact. And obviously it's even greater when their sort of extended founder family are best-selling authors. It was an absolute pleasure having you both. Thanks so much for your time. And until next time, guys. Thank you so much.